Welcome to the Honest Holistic Truth, a health and wellness podcast with Stacy and Autumn. With us, you will get the honest, unapologetic truth about diet, exercise, lifestyle choices, sustainability, supplementation, family, holistic health, and more. We don't pull any punches, so if you are ready for the ride, warm up your herbal tea, grab your favorite seat, and get ready to take notes because we are jumping into it. As always, recommendations given on this podcast are at the client's sole discretion and risk. You should see a qualified licensed doctor before beginning any diet, nutritional, or supplement program. Information presented on this podcast is for educational purposes and is not an attempt to prescribe or practice medicine. Statements and information on this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. No product offerings or services are intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any disease. Consult with a competent medical professional when making health decisions. Educate yourself about all health-related actions and choices you make. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Honest Holistic Truth Podcast. Uh, This episode is, it's not just a virus, the truth about common viruses and their lasting effects, Part 1. On this week's episode, I'm actually going to talk about my personal experience with viruses and how they have had a lasting effect on me. And then we're going to go into that a little bit more. Um, but then we're going to have another episode next week that dives into um, how viruses are affecting uh, chronic disease and things like that in healthcare and um, also in our personal lives as well. Mm-hmm. So my story starts um, about 15 years ago. Uh, I was actually in LPN school and I was doing clinicals at a middle school that we were sending kids home left and right with mono. So uh, mononucleosis or mono, uh, also called the kissing disease, I know, um, is caused by a virus. What? EBV. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's caused by a virus uh, called Epstein-Barr virus, EBV. And um. So there's a lot of misconceptions around mono. So like I said, we were sending kids home left and right. So I had five days straight where I was in a middle school and we were seeing kids coming in the nursing office. And I mean, it was just like continual flow of kids that had symptoms, coughing all over, touching things in the nursing office, us having to deal with that. Well, whenever I got sick, I never would have imagined it was mono because like I said, you know, we heard it called the kissing virus, right? All in high school and growing up and stuff like that. The problem with EBV is, is you don't just get it from direct contact. So um, approximately 5% of people that contract EBV get it indirectly, similar to how you would pick up the common cold or flu. So somebody sneezing on you, coughing on you, them touching a surface and then you touching it, that sort of thing. So because I had had so much contact with these kids and repeated exposure, that increased my viral load. And I was going to school full-time, working full-time, and helping my parents on a farm, raise food and all of that stuff. I was extremely tired. I was very stressed out. Mm -hmm. So my immune system was already weakened. So that did not help the situation at all. So I was one of those unlucky people that got to contract it indirectly. Um, Like I said, didn't think that's what it was at first. I just thought I had like a cold or the flu or whatever, but I just absolutely could not get 
awake. Like I was so tired and so fatigued all the time. Like I felt like I wanted to sleep constantly. And so then I went and saw my doctor. She drew labs, which um, is really the best way to definitively diagnose mono or EBV. They can do a mono spot test, but then they can also draw a lab to test your um, level of Epstein-Barr in your blood. So my levels were sky high off the charts of Epstein-Barr virus. I, my monospot actually came back negative. Um, but the reason that she thought that was, is because, um, I had waited so long to come in to be seen. So she thought that, you know, if I would have came in sooner, cause I dealt with this for a couple of weeks before I ever was seen. And then if I would have came in sooner, she feels like that would have been positive, but because of the Epstein-Barr virus showing positive in my blood work, then she made the diagnosis. Um, and then I had uh, hepatomegalia, which is uh, enlargement of the liver, and splenomegalia, which is enlargement of the spleen. So because of that, um, I was a CNA on a med surge floor, and I was doing clinicals. Um, so she put me on a pretty strict lift restriction. I wasn't allowed to lift anything over, um, about the size of a gallon of milk. So about five pounds or less was, was really what she told me. Um, because whenever you have that liver and spleen enlargement, you increase your risk of rupture anytime you're straining. So with lifting and things like that, then you can increase the likelihood of rupture. Did she think that your spleen and liver enlargement were due to the Epstein-Barr virus, the mono? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. Um, she, she said that. And then also too, whenever she drew blood work, um, my liver enzymes were abnormal and I had never had that before. Um, I mean, I had worked in a hospital and stuff like that. So, you know, I'd had labs drawn before, like as part of our annual wellness and things, and I had never had abnormalities on my liver enzymes or anything. Um, so that was something with, with the Epstein-Barr virus specifically, I won't go into a lot of detail here, but our first line of defense when we get a virus is our liver. So it depends on the health of our liver prior to getting sick. But if we get hit with a high viral load, what you're with, which is what you're saying you were hit with, it can overwhelm our liver. Our bile isn't able to kill off that virus. So it really takes a toll on our body overall. Yes. Yeah. And the, uh, one thing too, that I will say that I've often wondered, and I don't know that there's any way to actually prove it or whatever. This is just kind of a, something that I've thought about is, um, about a year after I, um, had the situation with, uh, Epstein-Barr, I had a sudden, very sudden onset of gallbladder dysfunction and had to have an emergency cholecystectomy to remove my gallbladder. Not only what did I have stones, but I also had a raging infection and it had started to move into my common bile duct. And um, so they automatically admitted me into the hospital and I had to have 24 hours of IV antibiotics and then they removed my gallbladder. And this happened a year after you had mono? Yeah. Uh, so I had mono like, um, March, April, um, of the following year. And then I had my gallbladder removed in, um, I believe it was like June or July of the following year. So 
just over a year after that was whenever I had the gallbladder dysfunction, never had any issues with my gallbladder before. Like I said, it was extremely sudden onset and I was very sick very quickly. And, um, I was not a good candidate for gallbladder. As a matter of fact, I had many residents that were brought into my hospital room so they could ask me questions and things like that. Um, because I wasn't a typical person that they would see having their gallbladder removed. I was 22 at the time. Um, I was in pristine physical condition. I worked out, I ate a healthy diet. Um, I didn't take any medication. Um, I had never had any children. So, um, it was, I just wasn't the typical person that they see for having a gallbladder removal and especially that sick of a gallbladder. So that was something that, like I said, I don't know that there's any proof or anything that, you know, and, and maybe at some point there will be correlation put out, but it's just something that I've always thought was very odd, um, that I had that occur so soon after. And of course, you know, our gallbladder is, um, closely related to our liver and, you know, um, digestion and all of that. So just kind of, kind of interesting. So because of the Epstein-Barr virus too, um, eventually my liver and my spleen, um, you know, the swelling went down and I, they were able to take off my lift restriction. Um, but I was, I felt very unhealthy for quite some time, but I had to continue going to school. Um, I did back off of my work schedule for a couple of weeks to allow my body to rest a little bit more, but I was just in a really critical part of my education where I couldn't not go to school and not go to clinicals and things like that. So I abided by the restrictions, but I still went and I don't feel like my body got enough rest that it really needed to at that time. Um, so, uh, it, it wasn't really until after I got done with nursing school that August that I felt like I was able to kind of give my body a little bit more attention and to get it back to a healthier level. Um, but in the meantime, I developed, um, some cardiac issues. So I started having palpitations and, um, some tachycardia. Um, so that's an elevated heart rate, even whenever it wasn't warranted, like you have that naturally whenever you're exercising or stressed out or, um, you know, anytime that you're doing a lot of physical manual labor and things like that, uh, that's natural, but I could just be sitting and then I would feel my heart. Uh, I would feel those palpitations happen and then I'd feel my heart rate increase. So I had to wear a halter monitor. Um, they did that for 48 hours. Of course, I didn't have any events during that time because that's always how it works. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, they talked about like beta blockers and things like that. But at that time I had just turned 21 and that just wasn't something that I wanted to entertain. So I started to pay attention to my triggers, um, which are pretty common for most people, but some things affect more people more for me. Lack of sleep is huge. If I don't get enough sleep, I know I'm going to have palpitations. Um, caffeine too much caffeine. Like I can drink caffeine, but too much, um, will do it too much. Alcohol can do it. Um, sometimes just stress, even if I don't have the other factors can, can induce palpitations. Um, and sometimes being sick. I can, I can just, and again, that's a stressful situation on my physical health. So, you know, it kind of ties into that. So all of those things affect, uh, if I have palpitations, um, I dealt with those for many years and then I really started to try to limit the, um, triggers 
Um, and then it got a lot better, but then in, um, November of 2021, um, I was a nurse working in, you know, uh, primary care and in, uh, the hospital where I would go to sometimes other areas and treat COVID patients. We were seeing COVID patients. Um, it was very stressful. Um, a lot of, a lot of different things that we had going on because of COVID. Um, my family ended up getting COVID actually not for my work. It was, it was a family member that we got it from, unfortunately. Um, and my <laughs> oldest daughter got it first. And then, um, of course, then Lena got sick. I was taking care of both of them. Whenever Lyra was diagnosed, then I was put off work because I had direct continuous exposure. Obviously I couldn't lock myself away from my, you know, at the time, eight year old. Um, so then I got sick and I actually had two negative tests. Um, so I was tested at five days, uh, five days after symptoms, 10 days after exposure, and then 10 days with symptoms, which would have been 15 days post-exposure. Both tests were negative. They were PCR tests. Lyra had a positive test though. So we knew that's what we had going on. Um, I wasn't terribly sick with COVID. Um, but then whenever it was time for me to come out of quarantine about day 10, uh, and actually it probably started about day nine ish. I started having a increase in palpitations, um, started feeling that tachycardia. And then I could get up and do simple things like just walk to the bathroom and I would get so fatigued and my heart rate would go up so much. And I was short of breath. Um, I got to the point where I was so short of breath that I couldn't carry on a phone conversation. It was like word, breathe, word, breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, it was very, very hard. I'm sure to, um, talk to me on the phone at that. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, so I, I did go back to work and I worked for a physician. He saw how much distress I was in and said, just because you can come back to work doesn't mean you should. And he told me not to come back for a week. He diagnosed me with post-COVID myocarditis, which is um, inflammation of the muscle layer of the heart. And um, I got an inhaler to help with some of the inflammation. Um, He told me rest. Rest was the most important thing that I could do for my heart. Because like I said, even the smallest bit of activity was would prove to be quite strenuous and I would get very short of breath and very tachycardic. So, um, we did blood work and found out that my antibody level for COVID was sky high, which would only make sense if I had actually had COVID, even though I had the two negative tests. Um, like I said, he did diagnose me with post COVID myocarditis. I had EKGs, I had blood work done. Um, and we just managed symptoms. Um, the following week, he told me I was only allowed to come back, uh, for half days. And then, um, after I was, I was starting to do a little bit better and stuff. I was still very tired. Um, by time I, I worked a half a day and then, um, then again, a week went by and I was able to go back to work. Um, but I still had, I still had a few days here and there where I was quite exhausted, um, And you could just tell it wasn't like a normal level of tired, like it was true fatigue. And, um, I feel like the COVID was able to affect my heart because I had that 
that past weakness from having the Epstein-Barr virus and that mm-hmm. starting that process. Um, and uh, I do have a holistic medicine doctor that has told me that uh, the EBV has settled in my heart among other places, which I also have problems. I have a lot of joint pain and such. Um, some of, I've had injuries and things from sports, but um, my knees, I haven't had any huge injuries to my knees, um, but they are quite painful. I've had to have physical therapy and, and imaging and things like that. Um, and he also told me that the Epstein bar had settled in my joints too. So yeah, that's probably why I have those issues, even though uh-huh. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's do a recap of, of what you kind of just told everyone. So it was like March, April timeframe in 2008 or nine. That uh, you got yeah, it would have been 2008. 2008. Yeah. And a couple months later is when the um, palpitation started? No, the palpitation started um, while I was kind of trying to recover. Like why? What, when I was seeing actively seeing a doctor for Epstein-Barr. And that was kind of part, like once we, once we knew that my spleen and my liver had the swelling had started to go down. And cause I mean, she could palpate my liver and you could tell it was swollen. Okay. So, so you got, you got mono, you got EBV March of 2008, the following June, a year and a yeah, couple like months, later, June, July. When, that's yeah. when you had all bladder issue. Yes. And then how long after that were the, did the palpitation start? So the palpitation started while I was actively being treated for Epstein-Barr virus. So like, uh, I went, cause I had, cause I was having follow-up appointments, um, with her for the hepatomegaly and splenomegalia and stuff like that. So then at one of those appointments, I was like, Hey, I've been having this weird heart thing go on. And then at that time, like she did EKGs and things like that. And then diagnosed me with palpitations. Did she say that was common following infection with mono? Um, so she believed that the mono had caused it. Um, she also told me because I was so much older and granted I was only 21, but I was older whenever I got the Epstein bar. And she did say that because of that, I had a greater chance of having complications and also lasting effects from it. So the younger that you are, whenever you contract Epstein-Barr virus, the less likely you are to have lasting effects and the less severe your symptoms. Most of the time for a young child, it comes off as just like a cold and it's not any different. So, you know, most people don't take their kids for little sniffles or whatever. And uh, of course, before COVID now, not necessarily the case, but um, so, you know, so there would have been no reason for, you know, for testing for mono and such like that. Now, when you get older, then you have like more of the fatigue and nausea and m- more headaches and things like that. That's why like those high school students, a lot of times are the ones that get diagnosed with it. Mm-hmm. And okay. then, yeah. And then, like I said, as you, like, if, if, if I had never had Epstein-Barr and I got it now, I would probably be very sick with it. Yeah. Um, So for whatever reason, that virus just tends to affect people as they get older a little bit more severely. Um, So she did kind of tell me that like, if, if you have things that occur in the future, um, you know, just kind of keep that in mind that, that, that is a potential. Um, She even made a reference to fibromyalgia um, and chronic fatigue syndrome. So I don't. 
And both of those things, based on my research, are caused by EBV. Yeah. And I know we've kind of talked about that and stuff. Fibromyalgia is kind of one of those, like, it depends on who you talk to. And there's a lot of things like in the healthcare field where it's like, eh, is it or is it not? I think sometimes it's a dumping ground for things that um, medicine can't explain. Yeah. Um, which is really unfortunate because then I feel like it's not explored further whenever yeah. the case. Um, but yeah, and, and, and also in my research as well, I have found that there are many chronic diseases that, um, and syndromes that have been linked specifically to, um, Epstein-Barr virus. Of course, with COVID, we have not experienced that long enough to know what that is. We have seen some COVID long haulers is what it's called. So people that are, uh, far removed months, um, you know, or potentially a year or more removed from having COVID and are still having, Mm -hmm. you know, fatigue, body aches, uh, that are unexplained, unexplained headaches, just other symptoms, uh, cardiac issues. Yep. So, um, unfortunately I think we're probably going to see more of that emerge. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I know, um, one of the, one of the questions that I get asked, or I've been asked several times before is, did I have a lot of problems with palpitations and cardiac stuff when I was pregnant with my daughters? Because I had both of them after I had had, um, after I had had Epstein-Barr and after my gallbladder was removed. Um, yeah. How was that after, you know, after you struggled with, with mono, the palpitations, the gallbladder removal, how, how did your body handle your pregnancies? So another thing too, I should mention is between having Epstein-Barr virus and between having my, uh, and, and having my gallbladder removed, I actually battled ovarian cysts, which I had never, ever experienced before as well. And again, it was a really sudden onset and a lot of inflammation, um, and a great deal of pain whenever I had those. Um, so but since I had my first daughter, I've never, ever had problems with ovarian cysts again. Um, and I, again, that was one of those things too, that like I had never had issues before. And I wonder why all of a sudden I had that af- that soon after having that illness and struggling with it so much. Um, and I was really sick, like very nauseous, um, vomiting. I couldn't eat. Um, like I said, a lot of pain. I was doing pediatric home health at the time. So I was doing a lot of lifting and transfers and things like that. Of course, you use your abdominal muscles for that. Um, and I remember, I, I remember you had lost a lot of weight. I remember I seen you for the first time. I think it had been like six months, maybe a year. One of the longer stints we went without seeing each other yeah. and shocked at how thin you were. Yeah. Yeah. I think we even have some pictures and stuff on social media and like, you could like see like my collarbone was so defined and like, you could almost see like my, like the structure of my chest. Like it was so, I could, I could your backbone. Yeah. Yeah. I was really thin and, and I had started eating more at that time. So it was, it took a long time for me to feel like I was healthy again after having that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and it took doctors a long time to figure out what to do for 
um, to, tr so the ovarian cysts didn't cause further problems. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, they had tried birth control pills and I actually thought I was going to bleed to death before I, um, saw other treatment because it made my cycle very irregular. And, mm. um, my mom actually, she pushed the issue because she was like, I'm not going to sit here and watch you bleed to death because they can't figure out what's going on with you. Like, this is not normal. And, um, she actually booked me an appointments and told me I was going <laughs> to a female, um, specialist in, uh, it was actually in Pittsburgh, Kansas that I went and seen. And, uh, she put me on Deborah Rivera and it was very, very quick. I just, I needed that hormone reset or, or whatever to make the bleeding stop, to make the cyst go away. Um, but it was truly a night and day difference within a couple of days after having that first step of Provera shot. Really? Yeah, it was crazy. So obviously, like I said, a lot of hormone involvement in order for that to be the thing that made it stop. Um, but it also made me really leery to ever be on birth control pills. I, I never, ever have taken a birth control pill since that situation, um, mm -hmm. because it, it kind of terrifies me. Um, and yeah. I try to do as little hormones as possible. I have a very low dose birth control implant right now. And I know we have talked about it too, that I, um, I want to not have any birth control, hopefully in the near future to allow my body to kind of regulate itself and things like that. Yeah. We can always do an episode on birth control. Yes. Yes. As, but, no, uh, I, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any issues when I was pregnant with my daughters. Um, I, even though with Lena, I had a lot of problems with, uh, morning sickness, um, for the first five months, um, and even lost weight, which I had weight to lose. So it wasn't like I was skin and bones or anything like that, but, um, it was, I didn't have as many problems with palpitations, which is odd because you have increased blood flow, but I think, um, I always tried to be so aware of everything I was eating and what I was doing as far as my health when I was pregnant. So I was really in a sense of optimal health during those times. And I think that helped a ton and I enjoyed being pregnant. Um, even with Lena, with having morning sickness, I enjoy very much being pregnant. And I think that that reduced my stress levels and, and things as well. And of course I drank less caffeine because you're not supposed to have more than a certain amount with pregnancy. Um, I slept because if I didn't, my body made me cause you're exhausted when you're building a human being. <laughs> so, I and there's research out there. Um, recent research saying that when you're pregnant with a baby, the stem cells from the baby actually will go to various places and mom that needs to be healed and help heal different things. So that's why a lot of people with different diseases or disease processes during pregnancy, their symptoms go away, they get better, they continue to get better after pregnancy. Now that's not always the case. Right. Some people get sicker during pregnancy, but um, there, there is research out there supporting that stem cells do help heal mom. Which totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So like, like Autumn said, we can definitely do, um, a, a an episode on like, uh, birth control and things like that. Um, and talk more about, um, 
you know, reproductive health and stuff like that. Obviously for women, it is a huge issue and so many things can affect our overall health and our reproductive health can affect our overall health in return. So, um, there's a lot of things there that, that can be mentioned and stuff. Um, and the next week we do plan on, uh, talking more about viruses, um, and their effect on chronic symptoms and syndromes, um, inducing other chronic conditions. Um, I know that, uh, there's a lot of research out there. Um, like Autumn said, she had found a uh, medical medium had talked about it when she was going through her research with, with her UC, um, and I actually found some research too, um, in, um, some healthcare related places. So they're kind of catching up to that, to that research as well. Um, so there's a lot of resources out there now available that are starting to go, wait a minute, there might be something to this, um, which is unfortunate for me. Cause I wish that they would have had that 10 or 15 years ago, but yeah. here we are. <laughs> Fortunately, it takes medical science and research a while to catch up just because they have to go through so many different protocols before they reach, you know, a fact. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. That's kind of how it is. Um, but yeah, they are finally, I mean, just look at autoimmune diseases, all these autoimmune labels. It's almost as if they say, we don't know and we don't have the resources to research this any further. So we're going to blame the person's body. Right. Well, that doesn't do anybody good, especially the patient. Um, and I, I think finally they're saying, okay, this was a theory. Why don't we start, you know, diving deeper into these different conditions and see if we can find a true cause in medicine, you know, their whole goal is to get a patient in, assess the symptoms, diagnose with the disease, and then prescribe a medication to treat said disease. Um, I feel like when they don't know what's going on with the disease process because of lack of research, um, they typically slap you with an autoimmune label, tell you those, there's no cure, and only have medicine that will help alleviate the symptoms. So... Like for, for us, um, and I say us because Autumn and I talk about our own personal health journeys a lot. And we have like, as we've experienced them, but also too, on a regular basis. Um, and a lot of our topics that we talk about on the podcast come from our everyday life, things that we're researching, things that, you know, other friends and family of ours have asked us about or, um, want more information on or whatever. And it, it triggers us to do more research. And then we bring the topic to you guys. Um, consequently, we both have our own personal journeys with things as well that we feel like, uh, Western medicine or modern medicine has kind of, um, I don't want to say let us down, um, because, um, the doctor that I worked for, was so, so good to me whenever I had myocarditis and it weren't for him. I don't know what state I would have gotten into if he hadn't realized how sick I was and said, hold up, there's something not right here. And also to my physician, whenever I had Epstein-Barr, had she not done a full exam and found out that my liver was enlarged and then did an ultrasound to find out my spleen was too and did blood work and stuff. 
who knows where I would have ended up, you know? So, so I'm very grateful, but at the same time, they were working within the confines of what their education and what Mm -hmm. the healthcare system has set them up to do. Um, so do not mistake us to say that this is an individual doctor problem because I have the utmost respect for many, many doctors. I've worked with many, many doctors and they, most of them have been phenomenal people to work for very knowledgeable people that I would take my own family to. Um, but again, modern medicine as a whole, the healthcare system, the model that we're set up to, to run in this country sucks. There's no way to put it. I agree. I agree. And yeah, there's like, we've said before, there's always a time and place for Western medicine. Um, but sometimes you have to be your own detective and you have to do your own research. And, you know, just like with me, with my internal bleeding, uh, with my UC, my, my GI doctor, I would have never got a diagnosis if I didn't have a colonoscopy done. Um, so thank God for that. And right. Uh, but when you, when you, go and and talk to a doctor about root cause, like can diet affect me? Can stress affect me? You know, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have an answer because they weren't taught any different. Right. And also too, I know Ottoman Ottoman and I have kind of talked about this before that um, the physicians, as much education as they have, they are very lacking in education about nutrition and how it affects our overall health. Um, Me as an RN, I had a much more extensive nutrition class than any of the doctors that I've ever worked for. Yep. Um, And, and it goes even past that. Um, You know, I've done a ton of research and things on my own as, as well as autumn. Um, Otherwise a lot of the knowledge that we have, wouldn't exist. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is, is just the fact that they really haven't had that foundation to appreciate just how much our diet and lifestyle really do affect us. And many of the things that they are told, um, in that nutrition education is incorrect as well. Um, it goes along with ideas that are no longer accurate. Um, I mean, even just one of the things that, that really stands out to me is, um, we have such a huge population of people that have diabetes. Um, I mean, we all know that it's, it's something that's been out there and in the media for a long time. One of the first things that they tell you to do whenever you get diagnosed with diabetes is to stop consuming carbs and sugar. Well, the problem with that is, is that we all know that fruits have natural sugars, in no way, shape or form, should you cut out fruits from your diet? No. And if you do extensive research on diabetes specifically, you know, lower your fats to under 30 grams a day and slowly start increasing the amount of sugar that you eat. It's the fats in our diets that are causing the problem, not just with diabetes, but with most disease processes. If you lower your fats, you are going to reduce your insulin resistance that you're having. Yes. And it's going to improve your disease symptoms. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like I said, that, you know, the, the focus isn't put on that. I mean, yeah, they're like, well, if, you know, we all know, Hey, if you're overweight and you lose weight, Oh, miraculously, your blood sugars are better. But then the correlation isn't, isn't what it should be there. You know, instead of saying you need to restrict your, um, you know, your red meats, which, and they'll tell you that, Hey, you can't have a steak every day and manage your diabetes, but enough emphasis is not put on the fat part of the diet. Like I said, it's more about sugar and carbohydrates. Yeah. None of us should be eating simple carbohydrates like pastries and white bread and white pasta and all of those things. But also too, whenever you say sugar, then they're like, well, don't eat a banana every day. Don't eat potatoes because that's starch and that's going to raise your blood sugar. But Mm -hmm. what happens is you take away those fruits and now you've taken away all forms of natural healing Yep. and reduction of inflammation, which can also increase your blood sugars. If you have uh, any kind of infection or inflammation happening in your body, um, you also are now making yourself more dehydrated and you have reduced the amount of natural vitamins and minerals that you were taking in tremendously. So you're actually feeding that disease state and allowing it to advance in your body instead of reversing it. Exactly. So that's just, like I said, I focus on that because I feel like a lot of people like they know what diabetes is, like they kind of, you know, I've heard about it and stuff like that, but that's just one area that is so misunderstood whenever it comes to nutrition and, and the healthcare field just doesn't, we don't react to that the way that we should. And with, with, Anyone that works in the healthcare field, whether they're a CNA or whether they're a physician, everyone goes into the healthcare field with the end goal that they want to help people. Yes. So just because they lack in the teaching model, not teaching what really needs to be taught so that they can truly help people, typically the doctors that do know about root cause and look further into your symptoms and do more tests and try to tackle that and not just treat your symptoms, it's because they had a personal experience or a personal family member or something like that, that they were required to look into further. Something triggered them to go outside of what their traditional education was. Exactly. And to me, those are the doctors I look for. I look for a doctor who's going to think outside the box who maybe has a disease themselves, has a family member who has a disease that they have to think up outside the box for to help, um, things like that. And I think that's where our healthcare is going. We just have to be patient enough to let it get there. I agree. I agree. I think there is going to be more emphasis in the future of preventative medication, um, preventative lifestyle changes, preventative with diet, with exercise, um, with exposures, all of those things. Um, but yeah, it takes a while for, uh, society to catch up on anything. So of course the healthcare field is such a huge part of society in general. So it's taking it a while, but I agree 100%. Whenever I look for a physician, um, you know, like my, my primary care physician that I see and that one of my daughters sees, um, you know, whenever I told him that I take ashwagandha, he didn't go, Ashwa, what is that? You know, uh-huh. exactly what it was. And he goes, oh yeah, I take that too. And I'm like, okay, I can have a <laughs> conversation with you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, 
And the same with, uh, we, we actually go to a clinic, a, a fairly small rural hospital. And, and I think that actually helps us have doctors that are a little more open-minded and stuff. Um, these are doctors that are from small towns and raised on farms and, um, you know, they're, they're very down to earth people. So they, uh, you know, they're willing to learn too from their patients and, um, you know, the same with, with Lena, with having her rare condition and stuff. I didn't want somebody that just started throwing stuff at her. I wanted answers and he fully supported that. Um, and, and it, we're still, we still don't have answers. We don't even have a diagnosis. She had, she's grouped in a dichromatosis, you know, like that doesn't really tell us what she has going on. Um, and he's still riding it out with us. Um, you know, and asks at every appointment, how's that going? And he gets the notes and he reviews them. And whenever I see him, I know that he's reviewed it because he tells me the things that I would tell him happened in the appointment. So, you know, um, that too is so important. I think for everybody, don't just get to get a doctor that says, well, you're going to do this because I said, or you're going to get the, get this medication because that's what they do. Whenever you have this thing going on, get somebody that's truly going to listen to you. Um, that is definitely one area of healthcare that has changed so much of, you know, it used to be back in the day, um, doctors were gods. So you didn't question them. They knew everything. They were the ones that were educated. So, you know, you, you just did what they said. Um, that is not the case because we're all so empowered with, knowledge now or have the capability of empowering ourselves with knowledge like you said you know finding that root cause whenever you have something going on don't just say well this is what i have going on doc i don't know what's going on try to empower yourself try to do some research present them with some options you know mm-hmm. um i think that's so important for us to take charge of our own health care nowadays yeah and when i first started doing that with my physicians I fired several because I would throw certain ideas at them, question if diet really affected my disease process, questioned if stress affected it, et cetera, et cetera. If they got attitudes with me and went on a power trip, they were gone. I went to some, I went to someone else internal bleeding or not. I followed my gut fully. And that's what I think everybody needs to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, for, for me, I, um, I'm probably not a good patient because I don't always, um, you know, go and have things checked out and things like that. I mean, obviously if I have anything serious, I do, but, um, you know, like it took me years and years to even tell anybody that I was having chronic knee pain because I knew that it was going to lead to imaging and this and that and the other, I was very relieved whenever, you know, therapy was the first line of defense, of course, um, and not medication, which I just said, I'm not taking medication. And he was like, okay, you know, and, and I think that that is so important too, that, you know, that you have a doctor that you can say, like, you know, I can go and I can say, well, I think that I have this because I had Epstein-Barr and it caused these problems. And I had this, this, and this, you know, and I believe that this is somehow related. I don't want somebody to look at me like I'm crazy and go, okay, I want somebody <laughs> to say, uh, you know, ask, well, why do you think that? What's led you to believe that? Uh, do you have any research that I can follow up on? Or let me look into that further. You know, yeah. um, I think that's so important for anybody that has any, like, no matter what it is, no, no matter if it is a chronic condition that 
can be life-threatening, like what Autumn has, or something like mine where I manage it and it's not necessarily life-threatening. It does affect my quality of life sometimes. I also try to do the best I can on my own with supplements, with diet, lifestyle, things like that. Um, and, and Autumn does as well. But like I said, I, my condition is not necessarily life-threatening. The things that I experience are not necessarily versus hers that can be very quickly if she makes poor decisions. Good. We could talk about this for so long and uh, we are going to do another episode, like I said, on the virus uh, situation and how viruses are affecting uh, chronicity of certain diseases and syndromes and things like that. So please join us next week uh, whenever we dive a little bit deeper into that and um, have some research that you guys can also follow up on as well. Um, like I said, I know we both have some different sources and such that we have looked into um, and and have delved pretty deep into those things because it does affect us personally as well as um, you know other people and stuff in our family. So we thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Honest Holistic Truth. Um, as always, don't forget to look us up on Facebook and Instagram and email us uh, any questions, concerns, um, any additions that you have. Uh, we We love to hear from you guys. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Honest Holistic Truth podcast. We really appreciate your support. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can always email your topic request or questions to the honest holistic truth at gmail.com and join us next week for a brand new episode.